So a number of people have asked me this morning about the shirt. <laughs> some, some rather unkindly said, we thought you only had one shirt, the pink polo shirt. Which, of course, is not true. I have more than one pink polo shirt. It's just that I only wear one at a time. So others have said, well, what is it with this Hawaiian shirt? Have you been to Hawaii on holiday? To which, sadly, the answer is no. Uh, we haven't been to Hawaii, although that would have been nice. But I did buy it on holiday in a vintage shop in Perpignan. And so you can probably tell it wasn't that expensive. <laughs> but I thought that it would actually be perfect for today for basically three reasons. Uh, one is that it shows that we don't take ourselves too seriously. Uh, nobody could wear a shirt like this and take themselves too seriously. Uh, another is that uh, John Wimber, who was the main founder of the vineyard, he used to wear Hawaiian shirts. To which I know the obvious response is, yes, Steve, but that was in California, and it was the 1980s. But more than all of that, the main reason for wearing the shirt is in honour of someone else who used to wear Hawaiian shirts a lot. The founding senior pastors of Aylesbury Vineyard, who I'm delighted to say are here today, Mick and Lynn Elias. Would you like to stand up? Now, technically, it was, of course, just Mick who used to wear the Hawaiian shirts. Um, but I'm absolutely sure that that was with Lynn's permission. <laughs> so what I'd like to talk about today is a, a question that always used to bother me, and it's this one. What does God want? What does God want? What does God want from us, from people? What does God want us to do and to be in this world? And what, if anything, has church got to do with that? Now, if you stop someone in the street and you were to ask them that question, I wonder what they would say. And if you ask them, do you think that the church is the fulfillment of everything that God wants, the pinnacle of his ambitions for this world, they would probably look at you as if you were stark staring mad. Or at least they would probably say, I certainly hope not. If a friend, uh, maybe an unchurched friend, was to say to you, what does uh, God... Well, you, yes, if you were to ask an unchurched friend, what does God want? What does success look like, do you think, from his perspective? I wonder how they'd answer that. Maybe one of these is what you would say. God just wants everyone to be nice to each other. A kind of cosmic equivalent of play nicely, children. But the problem with that, of course, is who defines what playing nicely looks like? And surely the problems of human life aren't going to be changed by just telling everyone to be nice to each other. That seems to lack a bit of divine ambition to me. So maybe that's part of it, but surely it must be something more than that. So maybe you would go with something more evangelistic. Maybe you would say, well, God just wants everyone to become a Christian, 
to pray the prayer and ask Jesus into their life. And obviously that's a really good thing. We like that. But then what? After they've prayed the prayer. Is that basically it? Is God done at that point? One more name added to that going to heaven spreadsheet. Is that the end game? Get as many people as possible signed up for heaven because the real business only starts then. Is that what it's all about? Or what about this one? Uh, I remember someone many years ago in a church we were in at the time, I remember them saying this, I know that God just wants me to be happy. That was her interpretive lens through which she judged what God was and wasn't saying. So if it was something that would make her happy, then God must be in it. And if it was something that wouldn't make her happy, then God obviously wasn't in it. Hmm, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Good thing that Jesus didn't make his decisions like that like in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was facing the cross. But you can certainly see sort of what she meant because we don't believe that God has an agenda to make us unhappy, do we? Because we know he is for us and not against us, Romans 8. But if we push that too far, as she did, then we end up with whatever will make me happy being Lord of my life rather than Jesus being Lord of my life. Another possibility is maybe you realise that it's not all about God making me happy and you've got a strong sense of right and wrong. So you would say God wants us to keep his commandments. And obviously there's truth in that. Otherwise they wouldn't have been called commandments in the first place. But then the question is, which ones? To which most people would probably say, the Ten Commandments. But the problem with that is that there weren't just Ten Commandments. Those are just the most famous ones. There were actually 613 of them, which obviously complicates things a bit, doesn't it? Because however much we may want to do what the Bible says, some of them do seem just a little bit out of date. Like Leviticus 19.19, don't wear clothes made out of two kinds of material. So much for polyester and cotton shirts then. And that's certainly the end of my shirt. But whatever the point was of that one originally, it was definitely now lost in the midst of time. Or what about this one? Deuteronomy 25.11-12. If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand, show her no pity. Okay, um, that one sounds even more weird, doesn't it? And again, it's hard for us to see the point of it, whatever it was, thousands of years later. Mind you, it probably never happened in practice. Although if you were a married woman at the time and your husband got into a fight and you would just try to help out, you'd be pretty gutted if you hadn't read Deuteronomy recently. (laughs) But joking aside, given this problem of figuring out which commandments are still relevant and which ones aren't, 
especially some of those ones in the Old Testament, it's no wonder that most Christians end up deciding for themselves which things in the Bible they will do and which things in the Bible they won't do, based just on what feels right to me. Or maybe something they heard a speaker say once that they thought sounded right. Or at worst, and sorry if this sounds a little bit cynical, but at worst, they do it based on how convenient or inconvenient it would be. So what does God want? One of the problems with answering that is that there really isn't any single place in the Bible where we find a verse or a passage that says everything that would need to be said to answer that question. So what I want to try to do this morning is to just share some simple foundational ideas that I think we find throughout the Bible and I think sum up God's perspective on what he wants. Three simple things, three easy to remember things that I think God wants. So the very first thing that God wants is that God wants us, you and me. He wants us. He wants to be in a relationship with us, every single one of us who also want that in return, a relationship that's close, intimate and personal. You can't get much more simple than that. And then what he wants is for every other one of our relationships to be guided by and inspired by and shaped by that relationship with him. The beginning of the biblical story in Genesis 1 and 2 paints a picture of what that relationship was supposed to be like. And then the next nine chapters up to and including Genesis 11 they tell the story of how our relationship with him and then our relationship with each other all went wrong and went downhill. And it peaks in Genesis 11. Or maybe I should say it hits rock bottom in Genesis 11, which by coincidence we're going to have a look at in two weeks' time. And then in Genesis 12, we have the calling of Abraham, and that's where God's master plan to save and redeem his broken creation starts to take shape. A master plan that is clear in places and not so clear in other places. Some of that Old Testament stuff is a bit beyond us, isn't it? Like those two slightly weird verses we looked at a moment ago. But it all becomes clear when that master plan comes to its climax with Jesus. And it becomes possible through Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us to be in relationship with God once again. More than anything else, God wants us. Because once he's got us, everything else begins to fall into place. But if he doesn't have us, or he's only got a bit of us, then everything else that he might want from us will just feel like a burden. Things that we ought to do or we have to do. If he doesn't have us and we aren't enjoying a real day-to-day -day relationship with him as our heavenly father with us as his beloved children, then that relationship with God will feel more like master and slave than father and son and daughter. 
The kind of relationship that God wants with us is the kind we see in Psalm 84, verse 2. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So point number one of what God wants is that God wants us. A relationship with him that will be the source and the motivation and the empowering for everything else. Number two, God wants us to love what he loves. Now quite often when I use that phrase, I also say, and God wants us to hate what he hates to get angry about things that aren't right. But you know, we need to be really careful about that because it's all too easy for us to hate things in the wrong way and even to end up hating people and getting angry with people because we get the things and the people mixed up. Which was basically the mistake that the Pharisees made. And, and that's a big problem because whenever we draw up any list of the things that God loves, people are always going to be at the top. Not just nice people and people like me and people that I like. All sorts of people. And you may know in the Old Testament the, the commandment was love your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus says that's good but I'm now going to raise the bar. Now it's love one another as I have loved you. So the first thing that God loves is people. And he wants us to love people the exact same way. So we'll look at some of the other things that he loves. Another thing God loves is righteousness. Psalm 33 verse 5. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Now that sounds like a, a very religious kind of word, doesn't it? Don't get hung up with imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness and all that theological stuff, because it's way simpler than that. Living righteously and righteousness mean two things. Number one is doing what's right. Do the right thing. Whatever the right thing is, just do it. And number two, it means all of our relationships being right. Right with ourselves, right with each other, and right with God. Making them right and keeping them right which, of course, is only possible through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And 1 Timothy 6.11 tells us, pursue righteousness. So living righteously and pursuing righteousness means doing all that we can empowered by the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to make everything we can in life right, to bring everything we can into the way that it should be, which means bringing it into line with the things that God loves, not just in our own lives, but also in the lives of everyone that we touch in our communities and our world. 
Another thing that God loves is justice. And we see this all over the Bible. Let's do a very quick biblical tour. Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 61, 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And there's a very close association between justice and righteousness. So much so that the idea of biblical righteousness without justice is unthinkable. Amos 5.24 Let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a river that never goes dry. Psalm 106 verse 3 Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. God loves justice. God loves righteousness and God loves compassion. Proverbs 29.7, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. And Zechariah 7.9, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. And that's why John Wimber said, if you're not going to look after the poor, please don't put the name vineyard on your building. I couldn't find a picture of Wimber wearing a Hawaiian shirt, unfortunately. But you know, that is why we spend, as a church, £100,000 a year. 25% of the money that you entrust to us through your giving on our Compassion Ministries. Because when Jesus said, in fact it was the very first thing he said in his very first sermon in Luke 4.18, when Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he meant good news in every way. He wasn't just talking about the spiritually poor as the church has so often reduced it down to. He was about proclaiming good news to the poor in every possible way. So God loves people, God loves righteousness, God loves justice, God loves compassion. And then at a more personal level, God loves good thoughts. Because it's the thoughts that we entertain on the inside that will end up dictating how we live on the outside. Good thoughts lead to good deeds. Bad thoughts lead to bad deeds. Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or worthy of praise, think about these things. And you may remember we talked the other week about demolishing every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. And then something else that we talked about the other week. God loves the fruit of the Spirit. And this is not only talking about the fruit of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Father and of the Son as well. Because the three are of course one in the Trinity. Galatians 5.22, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
And the reason that the Holy Spirit brings this kind of fruit into our lives when we invite him and we give ourselves to him is because he's bringing himself into our life. He's bringing the presence of God into our life. And these verses are just describing what God is like. Father, Son and Spirit. It's what God is like towards us as humanity. It's describing God's nature and character. Which is why he wants us to be like that too. Loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle and self-controlled. God wants us to be people who love all these things and who embody these things just as much as he does. And then finally, last but not least, God loves a servant. Matthew 20, Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we haven't talked much about sin this morning, not least because it's an old-fashioned and quite a difficult word nowadays. So we need to find other words to describe the same thing. And probably the best way for us to do that is to say that basically sin is selfishness. Sin is living life to serve me, even where others may get hurt and harmed in the process. Sin is prioritizing my life around my time serving me, my energy serving me, and my money serving me, so that God gets whatever is left over. So what happens is that the first fruits get replaced by the last fruits. And whenever there is a conflict in my life between serving and being served, between me keeping and me giving, it's keeping that always wins. That is sin. We were in France last week um, where the thing to do is, if you're in a bar or restaurant, to leave a few small coins out of your leftover change as a tip. And I wonder if that's the way that maybe some of us think about our giving. A bit like giving God a tip for good service that we've received. I remember many years ago now hearing something that stuck with me. The speaker was talking about John 15:13, where Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than that he lays down his life for his friends. And the speaker said, In this life, we have a choice. Either we lay down our lives for our friends, or we end up laying down our friends for our lives. Those are the only two options. So a quick reminder, the first thing that God wants is that God wants us. And then when he's got us, when he's captured our hearts, he wants us increasingly to love what he loves, starting with loving people. Please don't ever think that you are loving God if you're not loving people. And not just deep down inside in your emotions, 
Love in the Bible is a doing word, not just a thinking word or a feeling word. What we love and who we love is defined by what we do, not by what we think or feel. God loves justice and righteousness and compassion and good thoughts and the fruit of the Spirit and serving and giving. So everything that he loves, all these things that he loves, all these things that he embodies are the things he wants us to love and for us to embody too towards others. And then finally, he wants us to join him in his mission in this world. And we'll close with a few quick thoughts about this one, what it means for us to join him in that mission. John Wright, who's the National Director of Vineyard in the UK and Ireland, uh, John says that church was never supposed to be like a football match, with 22 people running around doing everything and getting worn out, while everyone else sits in the stands watching and shouting instructions from the side. The kingdom of God was never supposed to be a spectator sport, which is why in the vineyard we say everyone gets to play. Everyone is called to play because Jesus is recruiting an army, not an audience. That's why Jesus got his disciples ministering healing to the sick and casting out demons and why he got them handing out the bread and the fish in the feeding of the 5,000. He gave it to the disciples, and they gave it to the people. Now, it's true that Jesus said, I will build my church. But he didn't say that so that we could turn church building into a spectator sport and just watch him and stand on the sidelines. So I wonder if I could ask all of us this morning to ask ourselves, am I part of an army or am I part of an audience? Now, a very good question to ask at this point would be, what is the mission of God exactly? Or if you want to sound posh, you can call it the Missio Dei, the mission of God in Latin. But whether it's Latin or English, if we're going to join him in it, we need to know what it is, don't we? And the phrase that Jesus used is the kingdom of God. So the mission of God is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is the mission of God. The kingdom isn't the church, although the church should obviously reflect the kingdom. The kingdom is this. The kingdom is wherever the rule and reign of God is present. Wherever we see the rule and reign of God in this world right now, whether it's in someone's life, or in someone's healing, or in uh, deliverance, or their family, or their work situation. Whenever we see the forces of darkness being pushed back, and we see stuff that's right and good, and we see victories over sin, and death, and Satan, and addiction, and all of these enemies of human life, that is the kingdom. The kingdom began in Jesus' first coming, he brought the rule and reign of God into this world in his life and his ministry. Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then the kingdom will be completed 
It will come in all of its fullness in Jesus' second coming. So in these in-between times, we are living in the now and the not yet. We experience the kingdom in part, but only in part. Because the rule and reign of God is here now, but it's also not yet here now as well, which can be confusing. But it explains why sometimes we see healings and praise God for those, but sometimes we don't. So us joining Jesus in the mission of God is to join him in proclaiming and demonstrating and advancing the kingdom of God in people's lives exactly like Jesus did, by the same power of the same Holy Spirit. John 14, 12, Jesus said, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So the kingdom of God is what life will one day look like in what we call the new heavens and the new earth, when all of the evil and all of the bad stuff about human life is taken out. And all we have left is what's good and what's God. All we have left is the things that God loves and all the people who love what God loves and who want what God wants. So now, right now, we pray for the kingdom of God to come. The Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And when we pray for healing and for the power of God to intervene and change people's lives and situations and to drive out sickness and darkness in their lives, what we're actually praying for is that future kingdom to come and invade our present. God is calling us to live the future, not to live in the future, we're to live in the now. But to live the future in the now. Because we are not so much going to the future, but the future is coming to us. And that is exactly what we're praying for when we pray. We're saying, God, would you bring your future into this person's present, in Jesus' name. James, maybe you could join me. Thanks. So number one, God wants us. Number two, God wants us to love what he loves. And number three, God wants us to want to join him in his mission in this world, to join him in the mission of the kingdom, to show this world what life looks like when Jesus is Lord among a group of people. To offer the world, to offer our friends and our families and our communities a little taster of God's future kingdom. That future kingdom when God himself will dwell among his people. Revelation 21. When there will be no more tears or crying or pain or hunger or suffering or injustice when death and everything that leads to death will be gone. So that, folks, is what God wants. The only question is, is it something that we want as well?
Is it something that we want to be a part of and to give our lives to? Starting now.